Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, leading the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the history of cities and the future of urban life in a world that is hot, flat, and crowded. More people are living in cities than ever before, and in China, 350 million people are moving into dense urban areas in one of the biggest demographic shifts in human history. How those communities are formed and powered will have a significant impact on the future of China and the air quality and climate in the United States. Pollution from Shanghai and Beijing, after all, travels to San Francisco and beyond. Over the next hour, we will discuss urban parks and farms, microgrids and living buildings, dynamic urban planning that adapts to changing coastlines, and severe weather delivered by a volatile climate. We're joined by two visionary authors who write and think deeply about urban communities in the United States, China, and around the world. Peter Calthorpe is an architect and urban planner who has championed walkable communities in transit-oriented development. He works in California and China on championing land use and property development in ways that increase the quality of life and decrease carbon pollution. His latest book is Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. Jonathan Rose heads a real estate development planning and investment firm. He previously chaired a commission created to reduce the carbon footprint of New York City's huge transit system. With his wife, Diana Calthorpe Rose, yes, that's Peter's sister, Jonathan co-founded the Garrison Institute and created its Climate, Mind, and Behavior program. His new book is The Well-Tempered City, What Modern Science, Ancient Civilizations, and human nature teach us about the future of urban life. Please welcome them both to Climate One. Jonathan Rose, you write that the key to the future of cities uh, is found in the past. So tell us about some of the, how you open your book, where you touch on Jericho and other ancient civilizations and how they can inform where we are today. So I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about a lesson from the deep past, from almost the, the begin, really before civilization began. And it, it's a climate story, and it's one of the reasons why civilization began. So uh, we see the, the book traces the evolution of, of humans and moving towards cities starting 50,000 B.C. But about 10,000 B.C., there was a climate incident in which all of a sudden the climate became much colder. And what happened was the grains that were then available adapted those that couldn't adapt, of course, uh, died or diminished. Um, they had a much shorter growing season. And so what they had to do was grow a much bigger seed head, and they had to actually grow a harder coating around it to protect the seed head from the winter, in effect. Uh, and that bigger seed head had many more calories and nutrients in it. And that's what the, the grains had to do to protect themselves. But all of a sudden, so you ask, why did agriculture take place when it took place? There are many reasons. Part had to do with technology in part, and actually had to do with cognition, how we actually understood things. But it turns out until that moment, 
there really weren't grains worth agriculting for, with, or you know, growing. Um, after that, there were these incredibly powerful, caloric, and nutritious grains uh, that were created by climate change. Uh, that period was about 300 years, and when that period was over, all of a sudden, the beginnings of civilization really expanded. So climate change uh, happened in a way that human civilization adapted positively, right. and we'll talk later about right. some more challenging adaptations right. to but, climate. But, but so what we see is that climate change always transforms the, the, the natural ecology and leaves things differently afterwards. And so what we really need to do is to increase the adaptive capacity of our current civilization to adapt to the climate change. That was naturally occurring to climate change. This is climate change that we have created. You also write a little bit about how naturally uh, civilization developed near waterways, coastlines, uh, that sort of things. Tell us about how important that is. I want to get to today. We'll get to sea level rise and some of Peter's work. So one of the key elements of civilization was actually is connectivity. And we see this today, by the way, in modern economies that are dramatically shifting. But the more connected a city is, the better it's going to do. As a matter of fact, the whole emergence of uh, civilization uh, came from small towns that began to trade and connect and created what was called an interaction sphere. And coastlines have been the traditional um, launching points for a larger interaction sphere of trade and commerce and the exchange of ideas. And Peter Calthorpe, now most Americans live along the coast. A lot of the large, most major cities are on the coast or a major waterway. Uh, you're a champion of, of, of developing those cities in a more livable human way. Um, how do you see where we are right now in terms of this, this stage of increasing urbanism, increased density along the coast? Well, I, I never like to reduce climate change to sea level rise. I mean, everybody seems to think that is the one and only negative impact, but there's so many negative impacts that you have to focus on. To single one out is always a bit of a mistake. Well, I can it's give you a long be, list. I'd make a career doing like, Yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, there's, there's so many issues that we have to resolve. Um, but cities in general are really the vessel of the future of mankind. I mean, this country transitioned from agrarian population 98% to where we are now. China is going through exactly the same transition. We all know the earth is is urbanizing. The question is, what kind of cities and what kind of lifestyles and what kind of urban footprint, what kind of uh, environmental weight will we put on there? Uh, a lot of people like to think that cities, like uh, it's typical now to say Manhattan has the lowest carbon footprint per capita, Absolutely correct. But density is not enough. Uh, These cities have to be walkable. They have to be well-connected, as Jonathan points out. They have to be places where people can live lightly. So the difference, let's just look at it here in the United States. Uh, In the 60s, when we generated our vast middle class and and incredible wealth, the average household was about 1,100 square feet. Now it's 2,300 square feet. Just the quantity of space to heat and cool is by many factors in per capita greater. We had the luxury of one car per household back then, and now it's 2.3. We were averaging under 10,000 vehicle miles per capita, and now it's, you know, for suburban places, 26,000 miles. So before we get to all the conservation and renewable energy sources, We have to look deeply at our lifestyles, and our lifestyles are driven in a really creative, interactive way by the kinds of environments we live in, the kinds of cities we create. I mean, Churchill once said, he was referring to buildings, of course, but we shape the built environment, and then it shapes us. And that's really the challenge of city making, and it's foundational to the climate question, I think. Jonathan Rose, uh, the density is good for climate. People have lower carbon footprint. Yet today in San Francisco, in many cities, those are increasingly not affordable. So they are low carbon, but they are high wealth, high income areas. So help us address this uh, equity or inclusion challenge that we're feeling very painfully in the Bay Area. So the answer is you don't have enough density. Uh, There is a huge affordable housing issue in San Francisco, actually, uh, affordability is defined as being able to spend up to 30% of your income on housing and not more. In America, today there are 20 million American families that spend more than 50% of their income on housing. 
And these are hardworking families. It's hard to think when you add the cost of transportation uh, and then where I don't even see how a family can pay for health care and food and all the other things they need to when you spend 50% of your income on housing. So if the goal is 30% of our income on housing, to meet that in San Francisco, the median uh, rental or home cost requires an income of $160,000 a year. So there's a huge affordability gap here. The only way we're going to solve this is we have to preserve existing affordable housing, but we need to build more. We need to build dramatically more. The great thing is this area is a job generator, so growth is here and wants to continue to be here. We have to build our way out of it, and building our way out of it means much more density, uh, and it means mixed income density. Now, the interesting thing is that you can, there's also, interestingly to me, is there's not a lot of open space in San Francisco. And, and the open space in the Bay Area is not coherent. And what you, so you need to put these two things together. What we see in the great cities that are addressing this issue is combining much higher density and much more open space and creating much more livable communities. And these two things can go hand in hand. They are not currently politically acceptable. And as long as they remain uh, un, unacceptable, higher density in San Francisco, then we're going to continue to have an affordable housing problem. Peter Calthorpe, uh, lots of areas are going through this. Uh, a lot of people would support what Jonathan right. Rose just said, uh, just in someone else's backyard. Uh, that happens in the west side of San Francisco. It happens in, in Palo Alto right now. A great solution right. for Palo Alto would be to have downtown office uh, residential towers in Palo Alto walk to Caltrain. Why can't it happen? Well, I do want to just differ a little bit from Jonathan. I think that what we need is urbanism, not density. We need different forms of urbanism. And we need to look at this as a regional issue, not just a San Francisco issue. The pressure's on San Francisco because people want an urban lifestyle, and it's one of the few places they can get it. And so the wealthy can command what's most desirable. But if we create more places throughout the region intelligently that are urban, we can get them at different scales. But the, the basic quality of being walkable uh, and mixed use and relatively compact. We had a beautiful system in the United States prior to the post-World War II sprawl, which was streetcar suburbs. We had fabulous downtowns. We had these beautiful communities that you could get to by trolley. And then you would walk down Main Street over to Elm Street and you'd be home. And there was this connectivity that didn't really lean on the car too much. So there's a vision there in that. Um, and so the, the challenge is greater than just San Francisco growing up and growing denser. The challenge is for all the communities in the Bay Area to pick up the, the, and satisfy the needs. And there are wealthy communities that basically are saying no, like Palo Alto and Atherton and Menlo Park and these places. They're in the middle of these job centers. They've never say no to a, a new commercial development or a new office building or a new employer, but they sure say no to high-density housing and infill housing. And it's very exclusionary and it's very unhealthy. And you're right. I mean, there are places all along the peninsula and all throughout the East Bay, where we have evolving and, and increasing transit opportunities that really should become mixed-use nodes, and yet local opposition frustrates it. So I, I think that we just need to take a regional look at this. There's a whole issue around jobs housing balance in the Bay Area. The, the Silicon Valley is where all the jobs are, and all the people that don't have wealthy salaries end up in the East Bay and beyond. Long commutes, a hugely painful economically and, and in terms of life for people to have to make those long commutes, whether they're firemen or teachers or what have you. And, you know, our highways and our air suffer as a result. Um, so there's a lot of issues packed in there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think there are some culprits out there, cities that are truly uh, exclusionary. And they need to be called out. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Jonathan Rose, you write about the suburban poverty and also how the sub-mortgage uh, sort of machine contributed to that. So tell us how that came together. Well, I'm not sure those two things are totally related. But, but the, um, well, maybe they are. Um, there is now more suburban poverty in America than there is urban poverty. Um, 
And I mentioned earlier the cost of the automobile. People, uh, and, and so people who live in the suburbs uh, who uh, are, are meet the definition of poverty actually are more burdened by their cost of transportation, but they are also more burdened by fewer resources. So if you are poor and striving in, in a city, there's, there are after-school programs, there are, there are, there's a lot more resources for you than there are in the suburbs. Um, uh, so it's not a good situation for America. And, and uh, as Peter has pointed out, the suburbs tend to be places that are less likely to want to deal with it. And we have to rethink what the suburbs mean, too, because we have a, um, the inner ring, first uh, ring suburbs. We have a, a series of aging suburbs with aging infrastructure, and many of them are the places that are not attracting the jobs that the more prosperous suburbs are. So they don't have the resources to deal with the growing poverty in their, their areas also. So bring, in, bring back this to climate change. It sounds like this is another example where green living is yet sort of for the, for the, the privilege that you can afford to live the low-carbon lifestyle in an urban area. And if you're driving a car, living in the suburbs, uh, maybe you have good food choices, it's another way that the green economy is kind of skewed toward the fortunate. I'm not, I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't just say the green economy is, is, screwed, is skewed towards the fortune. Everything is skewed to the wealthy. Yeah, everything, I mean, is, everything, is skewed toward, everything is skewed toward the fortunate. That's what makes them fortunate. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but here's the key. So one of the premises that I really put forward in the book is that we have to equalize the landscape of opportunity. We now know America is deeply divided by zip code. There are places in the United States in which the, the healthiest people will live 15 or 20 years longer than in the worst zip codes. Um, we know that there are zip codes where income is hugely divided. We know there's uh, very interesting data that shows that literally opportunity of children, there are places in America where if you're born, your children are likely to have a lower than income you, and there are places if you're born statistically, your children are likely to have a higher income than you. That has to do with education system, a variety of other things. So we are a deeply fragmented, divided nat- nation. I believe that America was conceived of as a land of opportunity. That's our mission statement. That's, if, you, if you boil us down, that's what we have to offer the world. And that means we have to equalize the landscape of opportunity for all. To do that means we need to spread affordable housing throughout all communities. And uh, we need to spread transit equally throughout all communities. We need to st- spread parks and open space. Education, the quality of education needs to be equalized throughout all of our communities so that you... We, uh, we should imagine an America where, we, um, where not only every child has a chance to do better, but every child, as you've started this question with, has a chance to live in a, in a greener, healthier way. And how does that spread of affordable housing happen? San Francisco recently passed a mandate increasing the amount of affordable right. housing that, as a developer. Do you support those kinds of mandates on developers? I totally do, and I was very active in lobbying Denver last night, the city of Denver, passed a, uh, a bill that uh, uh, adds an impact fee and you know, you, spreads a real estate tax throughout all people. I actually believe that the development community should not be the only community that shares the burden of affordable housing, that we need to sh- uh, create much uh, greater um, uh, subsidy sources for it. But So I am a big supporter of that. And I also deeply believe in mixed-income housing, and mixed-income housing is better for the residents, it's better... Um, uh, it creates healthy, diverse communities. Peter Calthorpe, your vision for more affordable housing, not just in the Bay Area, but nationally, is it re- require public funding, government mandates? Uh, well, let me back up, because I think the issue now is, is actually bigger than affordable housing. The middle class can no longer afford the American dream. That's what two, 2008 taught us. And I actually have a totally different take on that. I don't think it was as much Wall Street as it was the paradigm of development, that the good life was a subdivision somewhere out at the end of a freeway, and the whole notion of drive until you qualify, so you'll get a cheaper house the farther away you go, and people didn't factor in the cost of all that transportation. But the reality is we built too much of the wrong stuff. We kept building sprawl as if that's what we needed, and we had stopped needing it several decades before in terms of demographics, I mean, this country is only 25% families with kids. 
it's all empty nesters and single people and much more complex arrangements so that the cul-de-sac doesn't fit anymore. When you build too much of the wrong thing, what do you do? You discount it. You put it in a bargain basement sale, which was what the, the, uh, the mortgage strategy was, you know, make it look cheap. So that, you know, that feeds into a larger issue, which is I think we have to solve the problem not just for the poor, but for the middle class now. We're not building the right kind of places for them. And so, it, it be, and I think that's a good thing because, on some level, there's uh, inherent solidarity there. If we keep isolating the issue and saying, well, it's about affordable housing, I think we're making a mistake. The truth is, it's about affordable lifestyles for everybody. And, you know, and, and I think when we see it that way, there's actually a larger constituency and a more powerful political movement that you can put in place. I agree that we need that is a middle class movement. And actually, the right phrase should be not affordable housing, but housing that is affordable. And there's a very wide range of people who need to afford housing. And it absolutely includes the middle class. But what I disagree is. Um, so first of all, I agree that there really was not suburban demand, but there were a couple things. So first of all, it is exceedingly difficult to get approval to build a new building in San Francisco. And they made it, the communities made it very, very easy to build in the suburban, in these exurban locations. So number one, there was a unequal landscape of approval opportunity. Uh, the second thing was that there really was mortgage fraud, that, that those, many of those homes, so there was a complicity between both the communities that were approving it, the developers that were building it, the mortgage brokers that were selling it, the lenders who were yeah. lending it, and they were lending with full knowledge that they were lending to people who could not afford those mortgages. That they, had, they were uh, moving unwanted inventory. They were creating unwanted inventory yeah. so that they could get the fees on the mortgages. And, um, yeah. and, uh, but the good news is, that it is one and one inventory, and the development community has learned that the market really wants walkable, mixed-use, mixed-income, much higher-density product. They want to be in thriving cities. And so the developers, you know, what's interesting to me is how many developers that were traditionally suburban developers have become urban developers yep. in, throughout the United States. They know this is where the market is. Now we have to unleash the capacity to build the greener, walkable, transit-accessible, mixed-income uh, housing that the world wants. There's a development near my home by KV Homes, which right. is one of the kings of sprawl, and it's their building here in San Francisco. We're talking about the future of cities at Climate One with our guest, Jonathan Rose, author of the new book, The, the uh, Resilient... The Well-Tempered City. The Well-Tempered City. What's the name of your book? The, um, and Peter Calthorpe, who's the uh, author, architect, and urban planner. Uh, Peter Calthorpe, I want to ask you about Envision Utah. Let's talk about some positive models where you've gone to some un unusual uh, places and done some interesting things in a red state, coal state, Utah. Well, the, the real question is, I think everybody actually understands who thinks about it, where we need to get to. The question is, how do you break through the logjam of stovepipe politics and stovepipe bureaucracy and stovepipe professions. Everybody's got a single issue to play to. And, um, and because of the cacophony, actually, there's very little movement. We see that all the time. It turns out that when you design healthy cities, you get an amazing set of co-benefits. You solve the housing problem. You preserve open space. You reduce uh, air, uh, congestion and bad air. You create more affordable lifestyles because people aren't spending as much moving around. All these things. So this is kind of the green vision, the Portland, you know, West Coast, blue state thing. We took this idea to Utah at the invitation of a group, which was ba basically their chamber of commerce, not the most progressive group. And this, of course, is where the Mormons live. And the smallest lot I thought I ever saw out there was quarter of an acre. I mean, really large homes on big lots. And we did scenario planning. So we said, we don't have an answer. You define several futures you'd like to investigate, and we'll give you the impacts across a range of issues, not just carbon emissions, not just health, not just housing, but all the issues. By having scenarios and having multi-metric analysis, we were able to draw together unlikely coalitions. So the Mormon church actually was very concerned with um, affordable 
first-time home buyers. They wanted their kids to be able to stay. And those big homes on big lots weren't a good uh, stepping stone for that. And so they wanted more housing diversity. They didn't know it, but when they saw it, they realized it. They're also very uh, sympathetic to walking, the ward system. You know, they, their whole tradition is walking. That was very nice. But the conservatives in the legislature bought into smart growth, and they are now building the most uh, rapidly expanding transit network, and with, along with transit-oriented development in the United States. It's faster growing than Portland. Um, the state legislature passed a growth management act based on this smart growth idea. Why? Because the infrastructure was less expensive. Because uh, city services could be accomplished more efficiently. Uh, the less spread out you are, the easier police, fire, health, education, everything gets more compact and more efficient. So they looked at it as true fiscal conservatives, which I guess are few and far between these days, um, and said, well, this is clearly a future that's going to cost the government less, and therefore we're for that. And so you had an alliance between you know, Republican legislators the Mormon Church, the environmentalists, of course, loved it because we got to preserve the Wasatch back and all this open space. And they literally passed a law with an effective urban growth boundary, delineation of infill and new development areas, very specific, and a whole network of new transit system. So it was a huge success, born of scenario planning and multi-metric analysis. Jonathan Rose, yeah. as you look out there, of the positive yeah. models, what do you see as some exciting models of, of a well-tempered, resilient city? Who's getting it right? That's an unusual case we just heard from, from Utah. What are some of your favorite? So first of all, I want to say it's, it's, it's less and less unusual. And one of the, I, I want to, I'll tell you about a favorite city, but I want to just focus on this for a second. So what happened was, as Peter said, a business-focused citizens group was the founder of this idea. A business-focused citizens group hired Daniel Burnham to do the Burnham Plan for Chicago, one of the greatest plans of the early 20th century. A business-focused citizen group who had been wealthy enough to tour Europe came back and created Central Park. It very often takes leaders who are independent of government who can host the creation of a big vision, a great vision. And partly what we lack in America today and our cities lack, we get so used to arguing these neighborhood issues and nibbyism and stuff, nobody is putting forth Grand visions. Thank you. So that's really, we, we so that, and, and the independent sector can do that. Um, it's good to have a government that also has control. So I want to talk about Singapore. So Singapore, one of their, and Peter was talking about um, codependence or co, how co-benefits. And so this is a really great example of that. Singapore gets most of its water from Malaysia. And they set the goal that by uh, 2080, they're going to be water independent. And the way they're going to do that is, first of all, they enforce a lot of water conservation. They use probably a third of the water per person as we do in, through water efficiency, etc. But they then said, we need to have reservoirs. And we're an island, and it's, we're not that big. So the only way to... And reservoirs are natural areas. We need nature to store the water. And the only way to do that is we need more natural areas, which means we actually have to condense our sprawl. To condense our sprawl, we actually need to go higher density, mixed use, mixed income. And when we do that high enough, we can connect everything with transit. And by the way, 12% of our land area is used by roads. So what happened? What if we set a goal of, of reducing that to six or eight and dedicating all that remaining land to open space? So by having this goal of actually becoming water independent, all the, co all the consequences of that required high density, mixed use, mixed income, greener development, and transit. The outcome of that is a much more livable community. And, it, and, and they have then actually said all oh, the open space has to be biodiverse. It's been an incredible um, uh, transformation of a, of a, a thriving city. We're talking with the future of cities with Jonathan Rose and Peter Kelfer. I'm Greg Dalton at Climate One. We're going to go to our uh, lightning round and ask you a series of short answer, yes or no, or one word questions. Uh, first for Jonathan Rose, uh, true or false, the 1950s produced no architecture of lasting value. <laughs> Generally true, but not totally true. Peter Calthorpe, Los Angeles will be a walkable and transit-friendly city within 20 years. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jonathan Rose, European towns in general are more livable and functional than American towns. Yes. 
Peter Calthorpe, most Americans don't want to live like Europeans with their small homes and cars. False. Uh, Jonathan Rose, which city in the world has the best cycling culture? Copenhagen. This is from a paragraph in your book. That's an uh, easy one. Give me one. <laughs> that was a real softball. Uh, okay, Peter, Peter Calthorpe, which has the best uh, subway? Ooh, I would say, man, well, geez, that's really hard. <laughs> the most beautiful is Moscow, by far, if you've ever been down in it. What did you say, best? The best subway system. Uh, you know, London or New York? Uh, Jonathan Is there Rose? a right answer? I agree with Jonathan, at least what he wrote in his book. Jonathan? I would say New York. What does the book say? Oops. <laughs> book says Hong, the, the book says Hong Kong. Oh, oh excuse me. Okay. So, wait, wait, okay. So let's, can I, we're in the lightning round. I'll, I can explain that later. So quickly explain Hong Kong or, or, okay. or New York. So, I mean, so it's actually subway trains is an incredible system because what they did is they not only developed the system, they're real estate developers. The system is a real estate developer. So everywhere there's a stop, they own all the land around it. And then they developed it. They get all the income from that. So it's a hugely profitable system. And plus, that back into the system so it's a subway tra- it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's less subway and tr- it's more train but it's a fantastic system and it's, it's, it's the same cool. is true in Tokyo yeah. in spades which is the rail lines and the subway lines own the TOD stations and you know actually when you look at it biggest city on the planet has the best air quality in its in its uh, class of cities and the most mobility and it's the densest and biggest and so it just shows things can work. Interesting, that combination of land development and transportation. Uh, back to Lightning with Jonathan Rose. Which city has the most advanced smart grid? I don't remember. Austin. Uh, most, Thank you. It's glad most somebody read my book. Most stormwater system? Uh, Philadelphia. And uh, this is easy. Best congestion traffic pricing. They're famous for this. Is London. Uh, Peter Calthorpe. Wait, can I add one more? Sure. Uh, the highest rate of recycling in the world? San Francisco. Uh, Peter Calthorpe, the living architect you respect most. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the living architect. That makes it really difficult. Yeah, Can we come back to that later? He likes all those guys from the 50s. Uh, I, I have a hard time with architects. I have to tell you. <laughs> I, I think... But there's a new generation of architects that are finally getting it right. And uh, the whole lead movement and the focus on green has not only solved energy problems, but it's made more beautiful buildings. I mean, the buildings are much more textured and interesting and uh, memorable than they were. And they're much better to live in. I mean, it's a, it's a complete revolution. It's hard to... They, they, we're heading in the right direction. I can't point at the one I love the most. Renzo Piano, I will say. A, you know, who, who did uh, um, our, the work in San Francisco here, uh, I love dearly because he really does care deeply about climate and he has a certain elegance to his work. He, I believe, designed the California Academy of Sciences. Yeah. Uh, J- Jonathan Rose, the living architect you most respect. I respect many of them, but I'm going to point out just one. Uh, I'm going to point out two. So uh, one is Nick Grimshaw, who is uh, from England. He's very, very, very green, very community-focused. He's done amazing transit centers around the world, very technical in his work. And Jeannie Gang from Chicago, who's doing also really interesting urbanism. Uh, Peter Calthorpe, the living architect you least respect. <laughs> oh, that's easy. Rem Kulas. Jonathan Rose, living architect you least respect. The, the living architect that I least respect is actually not one architect, but if you actually think about it, most of America is not designed by people like Rem Koolhouse or Nick Grimshaw or any of these people. It, the, the mediocrity... So remember the question about the... I know it's the lightning round, but the question about the European villages? The general, just general background building that's just the ordinary building is so graceful and fitting with the environment and natural and made out of local materials and all that. And the... The, the general quality of just commercial development in the United States uh, is not. Pretty, pretty good. Um, true or false, Peter Calthorpe, some of the areas des- designated for new housing construction along San Francisco Bay will be threatened in the next couple of decades by rising seas. 
Well, I think the rising sea. Yes. Yes. And the ri- rising. Uh, there's more to say here. Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's another one of the collective responsibilities. You cannot solve the sea level rise one place at a time. There needs to be a base, a base scale solution. This is association. I'll mention a, a place or a noun. You just mentioned what first comes to mind uh, when I mention uh, Peter Calthorpe, Millennium Tower. <laughs> oh, God. Unfortunate. Uh, Peter Calthorpe, Treasure Island. Uh, a real possibility. Jonathan Rose, the Jersey Shore. Uh, subject to climate risk. Still. Building back right in the same place. Uh, Peter Calthorpe, Beijing. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> lethal. Jonathan Rose, lead buildings. A good step. That's the end of our lightning round. How they do, let's give them a hand for getting through the, the gauntlet of the lightning round. Um... And now, here's a Climate One Minute. When we look toward the cities of the future, what values should we incorporate? Most everyone agrees that in addition to sustainability and resilience, we should foster communities that are livable, walkable, and breathable. And, adds Niall Malloy, former director of Communities for a Better Environment, they should be affordable for everyone. You know, it's kind of like a human rights issue. You know, people need to have a right to housing, healthy food, access to water. You know, we need to figure out what is something affordable to be in the Bay Area. I mean, outside of that, people are going to be moving out. And we see this trend over the last, you know, three or five years of people just being kicked out. Can't, can't afford it, you know, moving further out, um, east, further north. Um, and that's just the reality of what's going on. I mean, San Francisco is probably one of the, I think, one of the richest places in the country by far right now. And there's gaps, income level gaps. And so we think about bouncing back or being able to respond. You look at all those social inequities in that, you have that climate concern. So it's a resilience issue in that traditional sense, like how you'd be able to bounce back, you know, have the resources for it. But it's just also a growing trend that's happening in the city. So climate change is going to keep coming. Um, heat level, you know, all those different kinds of concerns. But the housing is, a, is an ongoing issue. And there's a lot of organizations working towards to fix that. Niall Malloy is a former director of Communities for a Better Environment. He joined us in 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. Peter Calthorpe, you spent a lot of the last six years in China. How China urbanizes is one of the, the most significant things for stabilizing the climate. Uh, Beijing was built on this sort of Stalinist grand boulevard model. It's, Beijing is not a walkable city. A lot of the other cities are still kind of built around the car. Tell us what's going on in China and how they're going to build the future of the city. Well, they inherited the Soviet model, which was also the, the modernist architect's vision of the 30s, which was towers in the park, super blocks, and a huge romance with the car. Um, and th- they've been building it at a pace that's beyond frightening. And, of course, the results are deadly, literally deadly. So cities that once were dominated by pedestrians and bikes are now... Um, really, you know, tragically moved away from that. And, and it's mostly because it's just too dangerous to be out there. Uh, getting to a corner is often a quarter-mile walk. Getting across the street yeah. um, makes... I, I think you'd have to take four uh, market streets and stack them side by side to get a typical major ar- arterial. That's what happens when you build super blocks you reduce the frequency of streets, and so every street gets huge and, of course, frustrates walking. So they're in a downward spiral. They're building the sprawl, uh, the, 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 the slums of the future, tragically. If our um, urban renewal and uh, affordable housing failed dramatically, I, I shudder to think what's going to happen to some areas in, Ch- in China. However, um, they are a fact-based kind of engineer mentality culture. And um, uh, our group with the Energy Foundation and lots of other people have been proving over and over again that they can't afford to keep going in this direction. And they, as recently as this December, from the highest level, from the Central Committee, basically, for the first time in 37 years, issued a new set of urban design standards, which said, among other things, we will build small blocks. We will limit the amount of automobile use in cities. We will have targets for mode split to transit. 
uh, every city will have to comply with. Um, we will have open space and civic centers within walking distance of every new house. I mean, a, a, a laundry list of best practices, I'm happy to say. And it's a little frightening because, of course, it's completely top down. I mean, this was not uh, any kind of collaborative consensus people uh, uh, oriented political structure, but it is the right direction, and they are setting off in the right direction. They're really serious about solving their air quality, air quality and congestion problems. They understand that their economy can't succeed as it shifts to a more white-collar service economy from an industrial economy. It can't um, succeed with unlivable cities. Um, and it's not their goal. I mean, the goal has been to move people from the countryside where poverty is highest into cities where economic opportunity does exist and where services, clinics, schools, running water, sewers, wa- you know, parks, all these things really can be delivered. So they, they, at the same time that they're building the wrong kind of city, this is the, the biggest shift away from poverty, probably in the history of mankind. So I have to acknowledge that at the same time that we think it could be done better. I think it will be done better, and uh, they're very serious about climate change issues, I'm happy to say. Um, and, but they see it as related to all these other livability issues. And so, very fortunately, I think they're shifting into a profoundly better direction. So, you know, what's interesting is for... 3,500 years from about 2,000 B.C. to about 1,500, uh, the, China had an amazing system of city planning that, was, that didn't vary, actually, during all that period of time. The buildings got more sophisticated, but it was a whole organizational system, and it was entirely designed around the idea of balancing the forces of humans and nature. And the idea of harmony was deeply embedded within it. And um, China now talks about building cities or building the future with what they call Chinese characteristics. And I think the next step is they actually have to look back at the great history of what Chinese characteristics truly were in the past and try and figure out how to integrate those into their future. And I lived in China as a reporter in the 80s. And Hmm. Peter, I hope what you're saying is, is right, that they've got the right plans but anyone who spent time in China knows that the local officials, little little money p- passes hands, and they don't, you know, bribery is, is rampant, and that the development was a saying that the heaven is high. Unlike and the United States, and that never uh, happens. Heaven is high, and and the emperor is far away, so yeah. that uh, the, the people uh, regional level don't always follow those central diktats. But in this case, that, that's let's hope that that happens. Uh, Peter also mentioned water. Uh, Jonathan Rose, I want to ask you about water and food uh, supplies. Uh, with cities, because that's something that we've become these long supply yeah. chains where water is trucked in on on uh, diesel powered trucks and, and plastic bottles yeah. and get to the future where there's maybe urban farms right. and food and water is closer to a well-tempered city. Right. So 98 uh, percent of the things that go into a city today in most cities in the world leave six months later as waste. And there's no way that we can have a population of 10 billion people on Earth have prosperity increases, people are describing, which means people are going to consume more and uh, have the climate change. And it's it's totally unsustainable. You know, we used to say unsustainable. It meant like that's not so good. But unsustainable actually means collapse without moving from linear systems to circular systems. This was first done in uh, Windhoek, which is the capital of Namibia, a a country in southern Africa, desert city, and it was rapidly growing and the desert was increasing, and they were running out of water. They brought in an engineer who designed a system to take their wastewater and to clean it perfectly and put it back and reuse it as drinking water. That system has run for 40 years without ever a failure. The engineer who designed it said, we need to judge water by its quality and not its history. So that's one example of linear systems. We now have water treatment systems that can remove the nitrogen and the uh, phosphorus which come from the urine in the systems, for $100 a ton, and sell them to fertilizer manufacturers for $400 a ton. We have water treatment systems that can capture all the methane, burn it, and not only fuel the plant itself, but um, uh, provide enough energy for thousands of homes. So what's happening is we're beginning to rethink 
For example, a water treatment plant, which was considered a societal negative, is now becoming a factory of uh, resources for communities. Now imagine if you take every single aspect of what comes into a, a city that we have been treating as waste and think about how we can create the infrastructure to turn it into local jobs. By the way, also design jobs to design these operating jobs uh, and using the resources and create those into jobs. And as we create circular systems, uh, it makes the cities much more climate resilient because they're much less dependent upon the resources the world's going to run out of. China, by the way, in its central policy in 2012, this is called a circular economy and dedicated itself to a circular economy. We'll see if they can actually get there. America is way behind in this idea. Then briefly, tell us about microgrids and living buildings, how those might be part of yeah. this, this. Gotcha. So once you begin to think about circles, then you can... T- so living buildings is an idea that came out of the Pacific Northwest. Remember, you asked me about LEED, and I said it's a good step, but... Living buildings is what's next, and these are buildings that are actually regenerative of nature, and that they, uh, number one, get their energy load and their consumption down very, very low by a lot of insulation, really high, great design. Then, then they have a lot of solar that creates energy, and they have a lot of, they capture all their rainwater, and if they can recycle that, clean it and recycle it through their systems, they become almost independent. But what we need in cities is not independence, but interdependence. So imagine if you began to connect all those kinds of buildings together as a grid, um, and then think of other energy sources. So we can be using cogeneration, we can be using, eventually there'll be batteries and large capacitors. If we're using um, you know, plug-in hybrids whose batteries can be contained, uh, used as part of that. And tie these all into energy grids, and actually there's two forms of energy. There's the electric energy that powers buildings, and there's also the heat energy when we burn for um, uh, you know, furnaces and generators and things, but also that heat energy can be circulated. There's a microgrid that's being built now um, in Minneapolis between the university and a hospital where they're exchanging heat in a fantastic loop. As that happens, and you do it multi-way, just the way Peter writes beautifully about how we need to get from arterials to street grids, when you create energy and heat grids all of a sudden you get some systems that we call are self-healing. If one piece breaks, there are multiple parts. Anyway, the bottom line is with a lot of good design and smart data and continuous dynamic adjusting, these can use far lower amounts of initial energy. The energy they do use can be far more recycled throughout the system. And you begin to actually mimic nature. Jonathan Rose is author of the new book, The Well-Tempered City. He's here with Peter Kelthorpe, the architect, urban planner, and author. I'm Greg Dalton. Jonathan Rose, I want to ask you just one more thing before we go to audience questions. The, the institute, the Garrison Institute that you find, founded, has a mind, behavior, and climate program. Tell us what that aims to do. So uh, in looking at the climate issue, it is re- we ap- tech- I just was talking about microgrids. Technology is extremely important. Uh, building form, city form, as Peter's been talking about, is extremely important. But what we also realize is that human behavior is extremely important. And human behavior actually comes from our minds. So the goal of the Climate Mind Behavior Program is to understand, and now there's such amazing new discoveries in neuroscience and in social science, can we understand what are the innate drivers of human behavior? And then can we actually adapt our behaviors uh, so that um, they are more climate resilient and less climate impactful? And what we discovered is you can. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Gary, Malaysian. I, I don't think you have really a housing problem. I think you have a transportation problem. If you can move people from Oakland to San Francisco in one or two minutes, I mean, we're still banking on a, on a 50-year-old BART system, which is worn out years ago, and you need a better form of moving people. Now, my, second to, uh, my question to you is why are we not building larger buildings that enclose all the things that people find in suburbia? For instance, maybe every 10 floors or every 20 floors or whatever the system works out to, you build a park, a shopping center, a tennis, tennis courts, whatever you do out of the building. You're forcing people out of the buildings. Why are we not building buildings that are, li- you said a comment, living buildings? Build them big enough so that you can incorporate a city in a building. 
And then they don't have to move around. Who'd like to tackle that? They just go up and down the elevator. I'm going to take the first one, which is about about transportation. We absolutely need a more pervasive transportation system. It needs to be a multi-level trans... We need high-speed rail, which I really hope the state continues to do. We need... uh, light rail, as Peter mentioned, we, we need a whole range of transportation solutions, but they must be integrated with, it's not only transportation. Uh, what you've described is, well, what if we put all the housing in Oakland? Oakland doesn't want all the housing. Uh, we also need um, uh, th- this combination of housing, transportation, schools. We actually believe in something we call, which your, your idea of having everything in one building uh, we actually, in Enterprise Community Partners, is a big advocate of something called Communities of Opportunity. And a community of opportunity is not just a building, it's a neighborhood that has not only affordable housing, has great schools, has great health care, has access to mass transit, parks and open space, affordable food, jobs, arts and culture, and spiritual resources, all in a walkable distance. We think that's what makes sense. We're talking about the future of cities at Climate One. Let's have our next question. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Jeremy. And my question is in regard to your urbanism and density topics. And... In terms of policy, are there policies in place that, like eminent domain, that will take the control out of, out of the citizens' hands and will put it into like the elected officials' hands to make uh, choices regarding affordable housing in cities like Palo Alto, San Francisco, and the like? Hmm. Uh, Jonathan Rose, interesting, interesting question. I actually believe the the that before we can solve issues through zoning or through, uh, I'm not a big fan of eminent domain, but uh, through the, things like that, we actually need a consciousness change. And the consciousness change is we need to realize that we are all in the climate problem, in the affordable housing problem, in the education problem, we are all in it together. And there's a lot of data that, that shows that the more equal a community is and the more that a community is actually compassionate and altruistic and works for the benefit of all, those are the communities that thrive the most. We will never solve these problems if it's all about nimiism and myself and what's best for me. Um, uh, in the 1960s, John Kennedy said, ask not what your nation can do for you, but what you can do for your nation. Um, Martin Luther King said that we are entwined in an amazing web of mutuality. We need both leadership and that view that we are all in this together. That's the only way we're going to solve these issues. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Just as a short background to this question, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, um, Mr. Calthorpe, you were asked by the city of Alameda at one point to develop a part of the Naval Air Station, and then when you presented your proposal, they rejected everything out of hand, based on kind of the, your experience with that, and Mr. Rose, feel free to add your own to, uh, perspective too. Uh, what sort of regulations would you change at a municipal or city level, and what sort of regulations would you change at a national or state level to yeah. drive development in a more environmentally and economically inclusive direction? You know, um, the Alameda case study is another one of the exclusionary. They have a measure A, which literally uh, says that this island will not build any more multifamily. Completely illegal and exclusionary, but uh, nobody's effectively taken them to suit around that. But it does raise the larger issue. At what scale can we solve these urban design problems. I think they have to be resolved at the urban scale. And the good news is that uh, the state passed a law that calls for regional planning and actually mandates that each region will create a community, uh, a sustainable community strategy. And if you leave the, all the decision-making up to locals, people will think small. Jonathan mentioned the, the grand vision. But it's really only through the regional scale interconnectivity and problem solving that you can get at the, the matters we want. And quite frankly, you have to veto truly uh, perverse act, local actions that, that are too exclusionary. Um, you know, Palo Alto not only is exclusionary in terms of housing, they, they're suing high-speed rail. They don't want it because uh, going from a diesel, a slow, dangerous diesel train to an electrified system is going to be too noisy for them. I mean, heaven forbid. Um, so leaving all this power in local jurisdictions is dangerous. <coughs> the reality is we live regional lives. 
culturally, economically, environmentally. It's the same air. It's the same watershed. It's the same commute system. We live regionally, and we need to make the decision-making, the final decision-making, uh, a regional obligation. Now, the, the, uh, the Growth Management Act in Washington State actually did that. They have an, a regional appeals board that if a local city cannot meet its standards for infill and affordability and its reasonable fair share of what the region needs, it can be appealed to the regional scale. We now have the beginnings of that in California with SB 375, which is our regional carbon law. It doesn't have uh, a big stick, and the carrot is pretty small these days. Um, There's opportunities, I think, to look at uh, cap-and-trade money as more carrots so that cities who want uh, who who comply with a regional balance will will actually get more dollars that could be a very effective step um, but it's it, it is quite complex I think we're headed in the right direction and I think as long as we have Sacramento where it is the, the state legislation will be supportive and slowly but surely we're going to have to put more muscle behind the regional decision making let's get the last question yes um, in, in coastal California, we've produced far fewer u- units of housing than, than almost anywhere else in the United States over the past few decades. Do you think that's something sort of cultural, or do you think that's something about the sort of the policy framework which allows local communities to squash new development? And if we change the policy framework, we wouldn't be held back by cultural challenges. So in New York City, if you build according to the zoning you apply for a building permit. That's it. In San Francisco, every building over 25,000 feet, I understand, has to go to the city council. It's a bazaar. How can you, how can you in any way meet your needs uh, with such a system? So we, I, one of the things that, we, that I would recommend is cities should have the vision for what they want to be, and then they should unleash the development community not to execute its vision, but to execute the common vision but, you know, we got to get forward with building it. So we need an entirely different approval process. And I happen to agree with Peter that we also, we need then those local plans to all sum up to a regional vision and a regional idea of how we're going to integrate all these issues. I've but, got, a, I got a coattail on this because yeah. it's a really critical point. The Brown administration just tried to pass an as-of-right uh, mm-hmm. development rule, which right. basically said if the city's got a plan for it, you get to build it and you, you can't be stopped by NIMBY groups or appeals. It was defeated because the construction in- unions came out against it because they use the environmental impact reports yeah. as a tool to threaten lawsuits and thereby, say, um, uh, get uh, concessions for uh, union labor so the politics of these things are very complicated. Uh, many environmental groups came out against the um, uh, as-of-right build because they love the environmental impact report and the capacity it gives them to put pressure on and extract concessions. Sometimes really good, sometimes not so good. I mean, I'll call out the Sierra Club. They opposed uh, the smart train in Marin-Sonoma four times on the ballot because it would be growth-inducing in their precious Marin. You know, it's that kind of environmentalism that's really debilitating to the larger well-being of a place. And understanding these internal conflicts and trying to get environmental groups to really understand, and there were many environmental groups who who went to uh, lawsuits against high-speed rail because of small local impacts in various areas. I want to bring this home as we end and ask each of you about, describe briefly the type of home that you live in. How big is it? What, what are its characteristics? Uh, this is the, uh, this is the uh, Al Gore question. Uh, I, I don't think you live in a mansion in the East Bay, Peter, but if you do, uh, tell us. I live in Berkeley. I live in a place with a uh, walk score of 84, which is actually very good, which means I can walk to most of my daily stuff. I could ride my bike to work. So I'm, you know, I'm within that domain. And so that's a really healthy thing. Uh, Jonathan Rose. I live in New York City in the Upper West Side, and I live in an, in an apartment, and uh, I can, and I not only can, I do walk to work through Central Park every day. 
pretty high quality of life. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Jonathan Rose, author of the new book, The Well-Tempered City, and Peter Calthorpe, the architect, urban planner, and author. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here at Climate One. You can listen to other Climate One podcasts at the iTunes store and climateone.org. Thank you all for joining us in the room and online. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.